Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. is a very special occasion because we want to show to you, our faithful listeners, how much we listen and uh, and, and care about your, your input. And so uh, Amy and I have been asking for questions and we want to respond to some of those questions. And we've gotten a lot of good questions, a lot of ones to, uh, to consider. One of the questions I received is, will Baptists go to heaven? Will Baptists go to heaven? Carl, would you like to tackle that one? Depends on the Baptist, I would say. Uh, well, I, I, I think that's part of it. I think a big part of it is, um, for my Baptist friends, you'll understand this, it depends on how sincere you were when you prayed the prayer, when you prayed the prayer. So it's pretty much that. Amy grew up the same way I did. Amy, is that pretty much nail it? Yeah, um, how well you can describe your conversion experience. Yes, if you know the exact day and moment. bonus points there and right. then... Um, sometimes it's good just to go ahead and double dip. Yes. Sure. Pray the prayer again, this time really mean it. And then, of course, you have to get rebaptized, although it's not rebaptism. Rededicating. Because oh, if, if you've been rededicated, now rededication, you're already saved, but rededicated means that you can feel better about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. keep in mind all of those things, our, our Baptist friends. And, <laughs> and if you happen to be a Reformed Baptist and you took this way too personally and got angry, um, I'm sure you can email the Alliance of Time. Confessing there, Evangelicals. There are no Baptists in heaven, of course, because they're all Presbyterians. They're all, they're all Pado-Baptists now. <laughs> they all become. Yep, yep. Okay, Amy, d- uh, d- give us give us a question you got. <sighs> okay. Um, oh, man, there's so many good ones. Uh, I just want to see your all's faces when I read this one. <laughs> Does Nate Diaz get another title fight before he retires? Will he even ask for one? Oh, well, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I'm Nate Diaz I'm major, major into... Um, yeah, I'm just I, Googling I, I, the name now. Yeah, I'll give you yeah, my considered yeah, opinion. Yeah, Nate yeah. Diaz. Okay. Well, since you guys have nothing intelligent to say about mixed martial arts, <laughs> my answer is no and no. And um, here's one. Who is Big Eva? Yeah, she's actually a retired <laughs> East German security guard from Berlin. So, so we use the term she very yeah. lightly it's in funny, that case. I, yeah, I was once asked that question in a very angry email by a former dean of my former employer. Oh, uh, okay. Mm. So, Big Eva, mysterious. mysterious. I think a very large lady who sings opera and has one of those hats with the horns. Oh, yes. And it ain't over until the Big Eva sings. Over until the Big Eva sings. Okay, Okay. good, good. We're not going to name the secret cabal because if we do... Uh, we'll end up with uh, with well we'll, we'll we'll end up sleeping with the fishes. Yeah, we, we don't name, name we names. don't name our sources. They have confidentiality. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So. Um, I've got one. Uh, what do you see as the differences between the OPC and the PCA, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the Presbyterian Church in America? Now, I'm a PCA pastor. Uh, my co-hosts are both uh, members of OPC churches. 
How would you all describe without being rude? <laughs> ah, darn it, I'm out. <laughs> describe the differences yeah. between the OPC well, and the, the PCA. The secret is in the word orthodox. <laughs> <laughs> now, I would say that on paper, very little difference. Mm-hmm. I would say it, it's actually hard to justify our separate existence because yeah. Yeah. on paper we have m- not quite the same, but more or less the same terms of subscription mm-hmm. to the same confessional documents. Right. Mm-hmm. In practice, I think there's also great overlap. Mm-hmm between uh, the OPC and the PCA, mm-hmm. probably the, the differences are more cultural and in terms of ethos, so they're hard to, to describe. Mm-hmm. But I would say, and I would also say the OPC doesn't have the, 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 the strong progressive wing mm-hmm. that the PCA right. has. And though this is counterintuitive because of the reputation of the OPC, I, I've been an ordained minister in the OPC for a decade now. It is not... It is a remarkably unlitigious denomination. It's been very interesting to me over the last decade that our denomination has enjoyed considerable peace internally, mm-hmm. uh, while the PCA has undergone, I, you know, I'm not breaking any confidences oh, no. here, the PCA, I think, because it's so large and, 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 mm-hmm. and, and has a greater diversity within it, has... Uh, it, it, endured, enjoyed, whatever term you want to use, struggles that the OPC has not. And continuing to have those struggles in the PCA right now. And another way is maybe you could say PCA is more bad religion genes, OPC is more kind of pleated Sansa belt denim pants. I was going to mention the gene short difference. Okay, yeah, yeah. But also... The way we do missions is a little different, right? Fundraising. Yeah. Very significant. The, the, mm-hmm. the big, and this would be an issue if ever the two denominations try to get together, that the OPC centrally funds its missionaries, mm-hmm. that our missionaries do not have to raise their own support. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, the bottom line is we have less missionaries and less missionary opportunities right. than the PCA right. does, but they're fully funded centrally. Missions yeah. was a big part of the, our story of origins right. because, of course, Machen was mm-hmm. gone into trouble because of the Independent Board of Foreign Missions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way missions are funded, that's a very important part of our identity. Right. I would say myself that it should not be a sufficient issue to keep two denominations. Mm-hmm. separate. I, I do think that one of the scandals of Presbyterianism is we have numerous denominations right. in the United States that are on paper pretty much the mm. same and it's hard to right. justify our separate existences. So anytime the PCA wants to vote itself out of existence and come and join the true Presbyterian <laughs> Church, we will be very well. Well, and there's another, we have a board of trustees, which is another kind of aspect to the OPC that the PCA does not have. Mm -hmm. And the Board of Trustees does a lot of the financial Mm -hmm. decision-making for the church. And I wonder if that changes the way we view diaconal work a little bit too, since that's something that the deacons take on more Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the PCA. Yeah, I don't know, that's something I like to... Okay, so let me ask a related question, which I actually did, this was submitted as well, which is, um, you know, right now, and Carl mentioned some of the controversies that are are within the PCA and we we do, we are struggling over some controversies um and because of that we have a lot of guys who are kind of man you know we need to leave the PCA go to a a more conservative presbyterian denomination or start a new presbyterian denomination well there are at least two new denominations being launched as attempts to to be you know conservative presbyterian denominations and, and of course Part of my struggle with that is, well, if, if you really feel like you have to leave the PCA, 
why don't you go and, and help and be supportive of an existing conservative Presbyterian denomination instead of going and starting yet another Presbyterian denomination? Because if these folks can't be happy in the OPC or the ARP, you have to wonder what, what will make them happy. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I mean, ecclesiastical perfectionism should not be a Presbyterian distinctive, right? And I think when you start, you know, if you can't find a Presbyterian denomination in the current constellation of Presbyterian <laughs> denominations right. in the United States that meets your exacting standards of what a church has to be in order to join it, then your standards are too high, right? And you are a schismatic. That's I, my I, I think concern. we're really at that kind of point now, right. Yep, I, I would agree. Okay, Good. should I come up with the next question? Go for it. Um, for Carl, how much of a following does Vantillian presuppositionalism have among the Reformed outside of the U.S. and especially in the U.K.? In the UK, I, th- I can think of my friend Dan Strange. I think he's the one. Um, and Dan and I would always, I would always pull Dan's leg about that. But uh, I would say very little. I would say Van Til is by and large and. Uh, an American obsession in certain circles mm-hmm. of very little relevance elsewhere in the world. And other than the fact that Van Til was <clears throat> over here at Westminster Seminary in the United States, that's not the only thing that would explain the lack of influence in Europe and, and yeah. in the UK. What, yeah. what else would you chalk that lack of? Well, I, I think you could talk about it in various ways. I think one of the the issues would be the philosophical background. Mm-hmm. You know, Van Til's philosophical background is really kind of 19th century idealism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that is not the philosophical background uh, in Britain, for example, to, right. to Christianity. Uh, so that would be, be an issue. I think his, his influence in America is very much connected to Westminster Theological Seminary. Right. And Westminster Theological Seminary has not had an influence in Britain uh, for example, to the extent that it has in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, John Murray, to some extent, known right. through his Romans commentary right. uh, and the reprints that Banner of Truth have done of him. But Van Til has not really enjoyed a wide readership in, in the UK in general. Mm-hmm. In, in general, uh, if, if the influence has come anywhere in the United Kingdom in my day and generation, it's tended to come from Australia more theological gotcha. college. Yeah. That's where the biblical theology has mm-hmm. come from, which is often linked in, in America right. to Van Til. In Britain, it would be linked more to more theological mm-hmm. college. So I think the reasons are probably institutional and, and contextual, but okay. he's not been a big force in, in British Christianity in the way that he has in, in certain strands of American Presbyterianism. Mm-hmm. Okay. I got a, one quick one really quick. Do it. Um, I once heard Truman refer to Martin Luther as the Jimi Hendrix of the Reformation, and I was wondering, what does that make John Calvin? An interesting question. Yeah, if, if I, I'm trying to think back to to what I would have been thinking of then, um, uh, <laughs> you know, whenever I think of Jimi Hendrix, I think of All Along the Watchtower, which mm-hmm. I think is you know, three minutes fifty nine seconds of rock perfection. It right? is, and I think yeah. Brian Jones of the Stones was doing uh, does the rhythm guitar on on, mm-hmm. on that. I think. Um, so I suspect what I was thinking of was that uh, Luther is spectacular to read probably the aesthetic experience of, of reading Luther. Maybe John Calvin would be the Frank Sinatra mm. of the Reformation. Mm. Um, kind of cooler, low-key, still technically very accomplished. So, if, uh, if, But if we were to keep it in the realm of guitar, maybe we would go with uh, Mark Knopfler or Eric Clapton. 
Yeah, I don't more think refined. Uh, yeah, or perhaps even Eddie Van Halen. Interesting. Eddie, Eddie Van Halen is more kind of mm. polished and technical, I think. Less he instinctive is. guitarist. True, true. So it could, hmm, be, it could, be, Eddie, it could be an Eddie Van Halen then. I'm not a huge Van Halen fan, right, I have right, say. Right. But, but he is a sort of I've seen highly technical... Highly technical hmm. guitarist. Well, this is a fascinating discussion, I mm-hmm. must say. I know. Cruella de Vil suggested uh, Carlos Santana. <laughs> Maybe that would be the... Uh, hmm. We'll yeah. have to think more on that one. Yeah, we, we, we yeah. really will. Okay, uh, so here's <clears> one. Um, and I actually am asked this periodically. You know, in Reformed denominations, and not just Presbyterian, but Reformed Baptist as well, um, there is a, a desire uh, and a right concern to want to be faithful to the second commandment, the second commandment forbidding the use of images, um, including, of course, images of God in our worship. Um, now, we all know that some folks believe that that is just a prohibition of bowing before an image in an act of worship, but the Reformed tradition broadens that out to a prohibition against any attempt to make an image or a visual depiction of God. Within that, there's a difference. Those who say, but, but you can make visual depictions of Jesus in his human flesh because he was, you know, you, you could see him and behold him. And so, therefore, it's, it's not inappropriate yeah. to, to make visual depictions. That, that would have been R.C. Sproul's position. But typically, the Reformed, and historically, Carl, I'm, I'm assuming this is correct, that historically, uh, certainly, the continental reformers would have said no, no, no pictures of Jesus either, no depictions of Jesus either at all. Um, uh, first of all, why have the reformed historically believed that? And two, then, what would we say to Christian parents who have you know the Jesus Storybook Bible mm, at home? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think, well, I think, first of all, why do the Reformed believe that? One can certainly root it in context. Now, in saying that, I don't want to relativize the argument mm-hmm. or purely mm-hmm. contextual one, but clearly the, the use of religious art and the abuse, we might say, right. of religious art in the Reformation was something that the Reformed were very concerned about. Not the Lutherans. Luther, mm-hmm. on the whole, and most of his followers did not have a problem with crucifixes, right. depictions of Jesus. For Luther, it was a theological imperative because crucifixes, depictions of Jesus, reminded people of how small God had become in the incarnation. Yeah. So Lutheranism is different. But for the Reformed, I think one certainly sees a strong reaction against what was deemed to be the superstitious approach of medieval Catholicism. Uh, a sort of idolatrous approach, and that's why you get in the Heidelberg Catechism images cannot be used as the as the as the sort of the the books of the illiterate. They're right. very very concerned about that. I think if we step back and look at the commandment as a whole, one would have to say I think it is a little more complicated often than than modern day reformed who simply want to say no images of Jesus. Images of Jesus are sinful. It's a little more complicated than that because I do think the incarnation makes a difference. So, for example. Mm-hmm. It would seem to me to be that the disciples would not have been sinning, having known Jesus in the flesh, when they thought of him to have a picture in their minds. So there's obviously some qualification got to be brought in there. Uh, For myself, I'm not sure that I've come down to a certain and settled position on this. Mm -hmm. So I err on the side of caution. I do find Renaissance art, the the Pieta, for example, in mm-hmm. St. Peter's in Rome, very. I can appreciate them as beautiful pieces of art, but I wouldn't go and see a movie 
right. where Jesus was depicted. And I make a distinction in my own mind in this way that any image of Jesus that's likely to grip my imagination mm-hmm. is problematic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, when I look at John Piper's Sunday school material and it's right. got a stick man Jesus in it, I'm not going to be particularly perturbed over a stick man Jesus because right. that's not going to grip my imagination. Mm-hmm. If I'd watched Mel Gibson's The Passion, I mm-hmm. suspect it would have fixed in my mind sure. a particular image of Jesus. Anybody who reads The Lord of the Rings now knows that Gal- Gandalf looks exactly like Sir Ian McKellen. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And I think that uh, at that point, I want to very much err on the side of caution. So mm-hmm. my personal instincts are, on the whole, I go along with the traditional interpretation. Yeah. I go along with the traditional interpretation of mm-hmm. application of the commandment, but not in an obsessive way that I'm going to mm-hmm. Scream and shout if I come across somebody with a Jesus picture Bible and right. demand that they burn it. Right, right. Yeah. Amy, what are your thoughts? I pretty much will agree mm-hmm. with that because yeah. I, I do think, you know, I've, I've struggled with it. Even in my last church, it was a kind of question because we inherited this big stained glass shepherd mm-hmm. picture. And, um, you know, the joke was, oh, well, that's just a generic shepherd. But I mean, oh, obviously, it's, yeah. it's Jesus. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, I, I do think that that's an interesting way of looking at it with how it grips your imagination. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's been very troubling in a lot of like VBS and sure. Sunday school classes um, where you see this uh, white Jesus mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and all of these things. So it has, I, I believe, a lot of people grow up with the felt board Jesus picture mm-hmm. in their mind, which is pretty sad. Yeah. And or the cartoon Jesus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and we would, you know, we would want to encourage churches to not um, have depictions of Jesus in the place of, of public worship uh, because our hearts are idolatrous. And if you've got a picture of Jesus, a portrait of Jesus, a statue of Jesus, or a stained glass window of Jesus mm-hmm. in the place where you gather for worship, mm-hmm. how are you to avoid not in some way venerating, if you like, that that image? Mm-hmm. Because it is a depiction of our Lord. Um and of course, another part of the problem is, is that when we try to depict him, since we don't know what he looked like when we try to depict him, we're going to get it wrong. Um, and I think, I think, Carl, your example of a stick figure Jesus is probably pretty helpful because no one confuses a, 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 a stick figure with a depiction of the, mm-hmm. of the figure, uh, him or herself. But clearly, when we try to have an accurate representation of Jesus, we're going to get it wrong and so therefore there's there's an inherent problem with with coming up with a wrong picture of jesus and i would also add i think it's one of those issues that a lot of christians have not wrestled with Mm -hmm. i remember Mm -hmm. some years ago it must be 10 15 years ago now when the passion came out and a student at westminster at the time came to ask me if i was going and i said no and uh i gave him my reasons as i've sort of outlined them just now and he couldn't even understand that there was a question right yeah for him it was obvious that you go you take people to see the passion because it would be a way of spurring witnessing conversation i mean it was good motivation i couldn't fault his motivation Mm -hmm. but what struck me as interesting was that it wasn't so much that he disagreed with me but he couldn't even see that there was a discussion to be had and i think it hasn't been talked about a lot of churches it's a lot of people default to Images are not a problem without having wrestled with right. the, the issue in any. It's definitely something that you sense. need to wrestle with. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to pick a light and easy one because we're running out of time, and some of these are really good questions that we might do whole podcasts on later. Um, but here's a quickie: How much do you read a day 
both amount of time and approximate page count. Any tips for those who want to read more each day but have trouble finding the time? Hmm. Well, Todd, I think, reads the entire internet every day. Because <laughs> I'm pretty I was convinced. worried this morning. At 7.15 this morning, I would not yet had a, a text from Todd pointing me to some crazy right-wing conspiracy <laughs> site. My goodness. I, know. I, I, want, yeah. I want the people who listen to this podcast to know that Carl is slandering me. He is lying. You know? I, I don't listen to crazy internet stuff. I, I, I stick, quite I hysterical stick, sometimes. I stick with Alec, I with Alex Jones and Glenn Beck. I don't go to the crazy <laughs> stuff. I didn't even know what the blaze was until I started to receive these texts from Todd. Unbelievable. You need to read this. These, um, these lizard men, I tell you, they don't have any Rest assured, I do not read the blaze careful how we talk around pregnant i I do not read the blaze only alex jones he's the credible man um i read um i read every day i read every morning i get up early enough um to go to a coffee shop pretty much just as they're opening and i'll spend time well before our church office opens uh spending at least an hour reading in the morning i'll find time every evening um and then once i i go to bed i'll read for probably close to an hour in, in bed as well. And that, and that's not the other type of reading that I put in with sermon preparation and that kind of thing. That's everything from theology to biography to fiction. Early morning w- will be typically um, theology. Um, at night when I go to bed, I've got a novel usually open. Yeah, I read because uh, I don't have the same job as Todd, but like Todd, I'm fortunate to be paid. Mm-hmm. to do a job that requires a certain amount of reading. So I'm always reading for my classes, to prepare for classes. Mm-hmm. So it's part of my work day. Uh, I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. So I read the Wall Street Journal each day, not all of it, but I, I read the editorials and the op-ed pieces and mm-hmm. any uh, news article that catches my interest. I, I get the British Spectator and mm-hmm. a Private Eye, satirical magazine from the UK, read those. Um, so that's my, my prime reading. And unlike Todd, I read a, a range of other things as well, typically a novel or a biography. Uh, and I try uh, at least once a week, try to read some poetry if I can, get mm. hold of get hold yeah. of some mm-hmm. decent poetry, not modern rubbish that sort of right. is free-flowing, but something that has mm-hmm. structure to yep. it. Miley Cyrus. You know. yeah, Miley Cyrus <laughs> or Lady Gaga. Oh, you know. uh, Carl, you mentioned The Spectator. I actually read The Spectator fairly often mm-hmm. when I get a chance. And then I used to subscribe to The Economist, which mm-hmm. is another... Uh, magazine out of the out of the UK. It's 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 pretty thick. It's a lot of yeah. reading. I never tried to read uh, a, a, an one. entire. Yeah. <laughs> but but there's but there's some really good reporting. Yeah. Um, and essays in the Economist, and yeah. um, I I will pick up a copy of that yeah. periodically as well. Uh, and I would just plug the Wall Street Journal actually on the grounds that I I think because it's because it's read by investors, there's a limit to the lies it can tell. Mm-hmm. So I, I find the Wall Street Journal has a good spread of political opinion, but by and large is grounded in some kind of reality mm-hmm. in a way that a lot of the, the other broadsheets in the, in the US yes. tend to be more ideologically driven. Yes, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Well, I would like to speak for those who don't get paid to read during the day <laughs> and um, those who have children at home. Um, I too try to get up early to read that's not always successful mm-hmm. as a mom. Um, my kids are older, so it's it's more so now, except for there's still plenty of drama in my house. But um, so, yeah, getting up early. But I'm also a morning person. I, I enjoy reading. I can definitely read uh, more in depth in the morning mm-hmm. than I can at night because uh, my brain kind of dies in, at night. Yep. <laughs> but um, 
So for me, like as a mom, that minivan line, pickup line at school, any doctor's appointments, mm-hmm. any little time that you may have of waiting, because we have to do a lot of waiting um, throughout the day. I do try to get some reading in like that half hour before yeah. the kids get home from school kind of thing, too. Yep. But and you have to be kind of more creative and just plod through. Yep. And so sometimes, you know, especially with little kids, you might get 10 pages in. Mm-hmm. And But hey. If, that's 10 pages. That's 10 pages. If you did that every day, mm-hmm. um, you know, what, 20 days you finish your book. Right. That's not even a month. Mm-hmm. So, And that's what I tell people to do um, who ask. And I'm, I am asked a lot about that. I say, take a book with you everywhere you go. I always, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. Always have a book with you. I, I spent the night in Washington, D.C. last night and went to a restaurant and I took a book with me mm-hmm. and just sat and ate my meal and had a, a, mm, a I invited American, you over at the birdhouse for dinner yeah, last pre- night. Preferable I, I to spending time with your friends. Interesting. Oh, well, it's, uh, <laughs> nice. yeah, yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. I, I, Which I, book is more interesting than us then? Come on. I have a whole list, um, but yeah. <laughs> Glenn Beck, I, I, his own story. I, I happen to have a daughter who lives in the DC area. So yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, um, we will return to this whole subject of, of listener questions. You keep submitting them and we will keep answering them. Uh, so thanks for joining us for this episode of Mortification of Spin. We hope that you'll visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. And uh, keep in mind that we are a listener-supported podcast. And if you'd like to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to supply this scintillating and outstanding content, scintillating. we would love like uh, for you to, uh, to think about making a donation. And until next time, thanks for joining us. I've got you. Deep in my heart that you're really a part of me I've got you under my skin Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about John Calvin didn't invent uh, the doc, you know, the doctrines of grace as they are are, are summed up in the yep. uh, in the quote the five points. And neither did a group of theologians who just decided they really wanted to spoil everybody's fun. <laughs> yeah, is, is there a question in there? Or um... <laughs> <laughs> that interview is next time. Join us then. So should we do it now? What will be the giveaway? Oh, yeah, we we need a giveaway. giveaway. A 15-minute phone call with me. Driving lessons by me. (laughs) (laughs) Driving lessons from the best. Yeah, yeah. How to blow through a toll. We'll we'll publish on on the blog anything you'd like to say about uh, Carl's pants. (laughs) Uh, We've been telling Bob we need fake products really bad. Oh, totally. Hair growth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, like, a- Amy's bra burning kit. <laughs> Progressive fabric dye. Yes. <laughs> Change your khakis into salmon. <laughs>